Hey, welcome to the next episode of the Church and the Starfish podcast. This is Rob and Lance. And uh, today you get the privilege, the treat of hearing from Todd Bolsinger. Todd is actually on staff of Fuller Seminary's Vice President for Vacation and Formation and Assistant Professor of Practical Theology. That is a long job title. It's a good job title, though. There's a, he's covering a hey, lot listen, of yardage. In as, a, as a Fuller alum, just the fact that Fuller's in there, it makes it a good job title. Too. This is true. <laughs> and all, he's also ordained with the Presbyterian Church, and uh, he actually served as lead pastor for, I think, about 15 years of San Clemente Presbyterian Church. So this guy's not just up in an ivory tower. He's also been down in trenches, got bloody knuckles. And uh, let's let's welcome Todd. Yeah, round of thanks, applause. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for coming. Todd, thanks for being here today. It's an honor. Nice to be here. Nice to be here, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, Lance, I know you got kind of a history with Fuller. Unpack yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Well, um, I did the Masters of Global Leadership. I was like, I was in the third cohort of that thing. So, back when they were still, for, uh, I guess the accreditation organization was trying to figure out whether this online stuff was legit or not so uh that was a long time ago so and now i'm way behind in my d men program too so <laughs> anyway gonna so, get a demerit so kurt frederickson like shows me his teeth every time i see something <laughs> i'm like i know i need to catch up so well t- tell us a little bit of your story of i mean how did you land at fuller um yeah. you know what was it the transition like you know going from pastor to professor Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, um, uh, when I was a pretty young guy, 23 years old, I got hired at Hollywood Presbyterian Church to be their college pastor. And um, I was the director of college ministries. I, I'd worked in Youth for Christ doing youth evangelism. And uh, they hired me and they said, hey, uh, by the way, we're going to send you to seminary because you're going to run out of those little youth talks you do by Christmas. And, <laughs> and, the, and the truth is I ran out of them by Thanksgiving. So it was pretty bad. Um, they basically just sent me to school and said, look, you're going to work here and you're going to go to seminary at the same time. And we're going to trust that you're going to work that out. And it actually became one of the defining realities of my life. That my life has been an integration of, of theological education, spiritual formation, and ministry all the time. So for 10 years while I was at Hollywood Presbyterian, I was also a student at Fuller. I did an MDiv and then I went on to the, do one of the very first practical theology PhDs. Mm. Um, and and really, the whole time I was thinking about the contextual context of being in inner city Hollywood and the way in which the church was grappling with spiritual formation and Christian community. And that became the center of my work. And then I, and God gave me the desires of my heart and gave me a place to pastor a church where I could raise my young family. And I was there for, uh, as you said, it was actually 17 years. I was there at the, at the church. Uh, wow. I went there and my daughter was three months old and I held her up and said, you're all invited to her high school graduation. And wow. you know, we moved to, uh, to Pasadena the, the fall after she went off to college. And now That's she's beautiful. a college working for young life and training to be a pastor. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. Um, and, and coming back to Fuller really was uh, an experiment of our president, Mark Laberden, who uh, believed that seminary needed to have more integrated formation, that the formation of people for their calling needed to not be something that was extracurricular, mm-hmm. but it needed to be into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so I came to do that and to be part of just a much larger 
uh, conversation happening around theological education that started way back during that MAGL that you yeah. started in and has <laughs> continued on for, um, for over 15 years. Fuller's been one of the forefronts of trying to think through what is the future of theological education in a cha rapidly changing world, and I get to be part of that work. Now I'm, uh, I'm one of the senior administrators working on that, and I'm developing an entire new leadership formation platform that serves people whether or not they need degrees for their lifetime, doing ongoing uh, leadership development, spiritual formation, theological education for people all over the world. Well, well your, uh, your latest book has that kind of fusion and alchemy of all those worlds. Uh, and I've been basically, I had to nag Lance for, uh, I don't know, a couple months to get him to read it. But eventually he, not, he noticed in my study, I had like an eight by 10 glossy of you. <laughs> yeah. Because I love the book so much. And uh, it really is a phenomenal book. Uh, canoeing the mountains. So give us like kind of a highlight reel of what that book is all about. Great title, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It was, it was built on um, the, the story of Lewis and Clark who were told by Thomas Jefferson to go find the water route that would connect the, basically the Mississippi river or the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific ocean. And it was a water route that everybody knew was there. As a matter of fact, they'd, they'd already begun to draw it on maps. They just hadn't found the connection point. And so, and if you think about this, water routes were the key to economic survival, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Great Britain was the wealthiest nation of the day because they owned the water routes. They had a great navy. So it's easier to take goods over water than it is over land. So Jefferson figured this out and got Napoleon to sell him the uh, rights to the, to, the, to the Louisiana Purchase so that they could basically have the rights if they could claim the water route, mm -hmm. it'd be like owning the internet today, really. Yeah. And so, so they take off and they spend 18 months going upstream and they get to the top of what is now the Lemhi Pass in uh, Montana and Idaho. And they look and they have every reason to believe that they're going to basically step over this little mountain pass and they're going to find the Columbia River on the other side and they're going to make this connection. They might have, and they thought the big bad news was they might have a half a day gap of of walking oh my goodness the other and what they of course discovered as y'all know is they discovered the rocky mountains were in the way like that um <laughs> there was a little bump in the road yeah, yeah 300 miles <laughs> of mountains between uh the missouri river and the columbia river that they would have to navigate mm -hmm. and what the whole point of the metaphor is this is where the church is today mm -hmm. we have been told that everything in front of us will be exactly like it was behind us that if you're really, really good at running rivers, you're going to be fine. You just need to paddle harder. Mm. And what we found is that the entire world has changed, that the, the future in front of us is completely different than the past behind us, that we were trained for rivers and not mountains, and we need to reframe the entire way that we think about leadership formation and mission, missional training and ministry training mm -hmm. in a post-Christendom world. And that the world behind us was this Christendom world where Christianity had home court advantage and today we live in a pluralistic world where Christianity is at most one uh, faith amongst many people, the vast majority of which are, are uh, people who are spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. Well, the core message of the book really, it resonated with both Lance and I, that's why we're doing this interview. Mm -hmm. And it really feels like it intersects in such a meaningful way, um, the message that we're trying to get out. Um, and Lance, why don't you kind of unpack a little bit the essence of the starfish 
Yeah, spider. yeah. So for anyone that's listening that's not familiar with this metaphor of the starfish in the church or the starfish and the spider, um, it, it it starts with a book that Ori Brofman wrote, uh, I think in about 10 or 11 years ago, 2008. Um, the metaphor is that if you uh, cut the head off of a spider, um, it dies. Um, but if you cut a leg off or cut a starfish in half, uh, it actually multiplies. Now, both of these have similar structures. Uh, they both are, are can, can move around pr pretty decently. But uh, uh, the spider kind of represents the hierarchical leadership or kind of everything, all the eggs in one basket of one leader. And uh, that can't create movement. It's not sustainable. And so the starfish idea is, is it really centers on the way that in our minds, uh, and in our theology, the way that Jesus really uh, planned for the church to operate and function. And definitely, Todd, your work and your voice and the things that you said, definitely, uh, the, you have to say about leadership folds right into this. Um, your metaphors, mountains and, 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 and the core of discovery. And uh, same story, I mean, same message as far as us. And so we're really happy to have you here to, to speak into this. Uh, really just vital, as you said. I mean, we don't have home, home field advantage anymore as the church. And what got us here is not going to get us where we need to get uh, for the future. I mean, to, to speak to what you're saying, it's like church leaders have been enculturated into that kind of spider-like hierarchical mindset. And what's required for the future we're walking into is going to be a much more adaptive starfish-type leadership um and before we get into things sort of conceptually um we like to basically start with personal narrative and so we're just going to ask you to go ahead and put yourself out there <laughs> and i want to ask you a question that uh may be a little uncomfortable but um i think will be a place that um of meaning for a lot of people that are listening and basically we're, we're wondering if kind of reflecting back on your story um where have you seen yourself, probably not intentionally, um, but found yourself complicit with uh, a spider-like type of leadership where you kind of find yourself in a moment and you're going, huh, I may actually be the problem here. Mm -hmm. um, my, the way I'm leading isn't actually releasing, it's maybe inadvertently oppressing. Um, can, you, can you think of kind of a moment in all your years as a pastor um, where, where you could see that really clearly. And what did you learn from that? Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no moments at all. Actually, I've just got <laughs> it's just been smooth sailing, right? <laughs> no, but that's actually, actually, so here's, the, here's one of the things I would say to you about this is, um, uh, the, the spider, um, model that Ori Brockman and, and his colleague talked about is actually the dominant model of Christendom. Yeah. Hierarchy what was believed to mm -hmm. be, divinely appointed, right? So if you think about Christendom is starting with Constantine, where Constantine declares the Holy Roman Empire and believes that the point of Christianity, the point for of his faith as a king is to institute Christianity and in all the structures and all the governments. We've been in that, you know, basically uh, uh, up until say the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it's the dominant mental model. So every model of leadership in one sense is built on hierarchy. And Christian leadership is often built on um, a kind of a di divinely appointed hierarchy. 
what's so disruptive about this day is that when you go into a day where you say, um, hey, so the experts don't have answers. Um, leaders can't just order the direction because they have to learn as they go. That one of the whole parts about being in uncharted territory is that there is no map. Mm -hmm. uh, the maps are wrong that Lewis and Clark had looked at. Mm -hmm. They develop a different model of leadership that is not built on hierarchy, but is built on trust, relationship, and learning. Mm, that's good. And so part of what you're recognizing is why there's this great overlap is that in a post-Christendom world, in a, and in a world where we are no longer on the map and we're in uncharted territory, what absolutely has to happen is a different style of leadership that is able to release, uh, to release and empower every person who's part of the mission to see themselves as having agency and capacity. So it's a much more transformational view. And that's actually one of the reasons why I've been a fan of that, of the, of the book you guys are referring to for the better part of the decade. And I, I um, because it's absolutely, I, 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 I cite it in uh, Canoeing the Mountains because it's a really important work. So you asked me about my own, my own experience. My own experience is all, I saw you trying to dodge that there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, the, so the classic story right. that I tell in the book is actually one of the reasons, and people sometimes miss the point of this story, is um, our church was doing great by every model, by every measure. We mm -hmm. had featured in a book um, about 15 Presbyterian churches in the state of California that were growing. There were only 15 that had, had sustained growth. We were one of them. Um, we had doubled our size. We had built a bunch of buildings. We had seen all kinds of re life come to the church. Um, and we had a year where we finished the year with an extra $100,000, which for some churches is nothing, but for us was huge. And we basically asked the question, what should we do with $100,000? You know, since God's been so good to us, wow. something really energetic and, what I, and really engaging and really you know, innovative. And what we got, what I got was an entirely burnt out leadership team who said, we should just put that in the bank. Mm. We don't know what's going to come and we're tired. And I couldn't figure out why, if all the markers were going in the right direction, right? Everything, as they say, is like going up and to the right. You know, it's all going up. It's all going up. Why were people so discouraged and so demoralized? Hmm. So I brought a consultant group in to do a bunch of work. And they basically, what they came and told me was, you guys are doing great. But our biggest problem we have with you is everybody here, all they do is talk about you. Wow. They're talking about the church doing great because you're leading them and you're the leader and they're thrilled to have you and they're afraid you're going to leave and it's all about you. And I don't know if you meant to build the church all around you, hmm. which, wow. wow, but it's about you. And I wanted to throw up. Hmm. I mean, my doctoral work was on Christian community. <laughs> wow. And here I was, a, a freshly minted PhD in spiritual transformation and Christian community. And my leadership style was about making everything about me. Wow. So in that moment, it, it did actually blindside you. Oh, it, it wrecked me because, uh, I mean, and, and part of it was is because I really believed that I was following Ephesians 4. I was equipping the church for, this, uh, for the ministry. I was, mm -hmm. uh, I was empowering lay people. I'm a Presbyterian. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Right. So what I, realized, I didn't realize was my default training in leadership was this old hierarchical model that our older members thought was dynamic leadership, mm -hmm. but it led people to be passive, mm. 
led them to then to believe that they uh, what the one person put it this way, which is everybody here believes they are participating in your ministry. Wow. At San Clemente Presbyterian Church. And that is not enough to sustain them. They want to participate in God's ministry. Yeah, yeah. That's like strangling the whole life of the church down to one man. That sounds like a brilliant satanic strategy. So that really did cut you off at the knees then, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, basically, the the consultant looked me in the eye and I said, okay, so what do I do? I hate this. He goes, well, three things. You got three choices. Number one, do nothing. They love you. You'll be great. These folks are burned out, but other people will be happy. They'll cheer you on. Ten years from now, you'll leave, and the church will just collapse. But you'll be fine. They'll think of you as the glory days. Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's no good. He said, second thing is you could leave. You know, just leave them. They'll find a new pastor, and they'll have to figure out how to live without you. And I looked out my window, and I looked at a picture of my kids on my my desk, and my kids were like young teenagers. And I went, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And they said, or you could learn to lead all over again. And I, I've been in that journey ever since. I've done it imperfectly. It's taken me, it's been the better part of uh, now over 10 years and led to re- writing the book. And I've consulted with over 100 churches or, and worked with denominations all over the country. And I've realized this is the moment we're in. We're having to learn new models of leadership mm-hmm. that em- engage the church with a different model than a Christendom model. And here's the great good news, of course, which is that, star- that starfish model is the model of the early church. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. That's, so it's recovering our birthright and re-engaging it in a new world that we're yeah. So it's really not a new way of leading, it's an old way. I mean, it, which is always interesting, uh, the word root and radical. I mean, the word radical comes from the, right, the, the word root. But anytime you do something uh, that people haven't seen before, even if it's old, people go, oh, well, that's radical. Yeah. No, this is actually very old. It's an ancient way, right, that we're, we're rediscovering yep. an ancient way. Because this, this type of leadership that you've spoken of, that you talk about in the book and that we're on about, people just go, well, you can never do that. That's just crazy talk. You, can, you know, someone's got to be the boss. The butt has to stop right here and stop hard and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, but we've lost all that in, that, in this, this historicity of, of – hierarchy that you talked about earlier well just just to give you an example um, in the early church we we always think that paul was the great missionary paul didn't write a single letter without mentioning the fact that he had a partner with him all the time mm-hmm. barnabas and paul paul and silas paul and timothy right right lewis and clark is an amazing story because it's lewis and clark yeah mm-hmm. they're so linked together that stephen ambrose said you know they're known as the word one word lewis and clark and yeah. <laughs> right and you could be in lewiston uh, Montana and not know you it was named after Meriwether Lewis and you can be in Clark County Kentucky like I was giving these I given a talk on this subject and didn't even realize it after William no kidding wow yeah. so Fascinating. there's a there's a, a powerful collaborative model right at the middle of that that has just been overlooked by uh, in the church because we have a default mental model that goes back to our, our kind of culturally shaped ways and the culturally mm-hmm. shaped ways of Christendom and hierarchy type plays into that. But Todd, one of the things I appreciated most in your description of this transition from the Christendom model to what we're calling the starfish approach mm-hmm. is um, you validate um, the skills and the capacities that have been built in the current model yep. as actually the starting point yep. uh, to get off the map. 
So could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, let's say there's a church leaders listening right now. I'm going, what, what, what do I do? Am I just supposed to like hit eject and I jump out of this and do something totally new? Where do I start? Yeah. 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 So, so here's a couple of things. First of all, to remember that the uh, model in the starfish and the spider that they finally land on is they call the hybrid star. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, it doesn't mean there is no leadership. It means that right. there's power in decentralized models, but there are certain things that need some things that are centralized, right? There's a reason right. for the head, right? And some of this, and, and the reason for the head is just happens to be a much more focused approach. So anything that needs to be centralized has to do with um, things that are institutional or think, and, and institutions, I mean, they get a bad rap these days and nobody likes, you know, being part of institutions, but you know, I'm a, I'm a vice president of a seminar. <laughs> right. On that, right. So, right. So, but the point about an institution is an institution is about protecting something that is bigger than any person or personality so that we might be able to have a movement that lasts beyond a generation. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you say you want to protect something longer than the person, you've got to find a wineskin, a structure. Mm-hmm. And so the point isn't to get rid of all structures or wineskins. The point is to recognize the degree to which a hierarch- that strictly hierarchical models tend to move towards self-preservation. Mm-hmm. They tend to reinforce mm. institutional preservation. Right. And the point is to turn the energy outward so that the head is literally serving a, yes. a growing empowered circle. Very good. And so part of what we, I do in Canoeing the Mountains is I say the key act work of adaptive leadership, and this work comes from Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky out of Harvard, the, the key work of adaptive leadership is to take your core DNA, what Ori Brockman calls core ideology, your core DNA, and ask, well, how do you adapt that to this changing environment? What does a healthy adaptation of that core DNA look like in a different day? So for Lewis and Clark, it meant taking a military unit that was meant to find a water route for the economic vitality of the United States of America and turning it into a highly shared leadership approach. They were still the captains, mm-hmm. but a high re- relational, high trust, mm-hmm. collaborative approach that was about exploring a whole new world. Mm-hmm. They didn't find a water route. They found the West. Mm-hmm. They, found the, they found a whole new world. Mm-hmm. Opened up the imagination of an entire new people. Now they also had they also encountered whole new peoples. They treated the native people, Native American people, better than anybody else who came behind them. And there's mm-hmm. all kinds of pain that comes out of that story. But their original vision was one of humility and curiosity and mission that is that is unique. And I think part of what this is calling for is a kind of leadership model that takes seriously that there might be roles that need to be led. Um, somebody might have to be the boss or the in charge. There might be partnerships, more collaboration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My, my wife and I have a completely shared marriage. I've never once, there were never once in 30 years of marriage have I ever said, I'm the husband, that's why. We, we've been able right. to figure that out. <laughs> you're, right? not, you're not the boss of her. No, no. And you know, and people say, oh, who breaks the ties? I'm like, it's two people. It's two, it's not like mm-hmm. it's, not like it's, right. not like we need an election. Um, there's a whole models of collaborative, empowered leadership that can work. Um, right. Stanley McChrystal talks about this in his book called Team of Teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
in the military, they had a radical reorientation of the way in which they function as a team of teams instead of a command and control model. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening in every industry. It's happening in every place. It is. Church, it's recovering our birthright. Yeah. Now, and, and, and the sad thing about it is it seems like so often, sometimes with innovation, the church is the last one to catch on. And so it's, it still feels like we're kind of pushing the ball uphill. Uh, in your work at Fuller in particular, in your role there, Todd, at Fuller, in, in shaping the, the thinking of, of, of where Fuller will move forward and what it's offering in leadership formation, how is this type of thinking, your type of thinking uh, in this subject, how is it influencing the future of, of what you hope to see offered uh, through Fuller? Well, well, two big places where we're seeing this across the board, and I'm not the only one by far. I'm just part of a team of people. Sure. Right? But um, one of the parts is acknowledging that um, core ideology is about core values, and it's about getting really clear on what will never change. So it's developing a deep sense of identity and spirituality and spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. So one of the parts we try to hold on to is, is how do you lead the the – the pastors of the future, the organizational leaders, the Christian leaders of the future, to get really, really clear on what we believe and why. What mm-hmm. is our mission? What should never change about us? So there is a reason for teaching um, our theology, our, our biblical tools, our, our way of thinking, our bringing to, to bear. But it also takes more, much more humbly takes um, seriously the context, the vast vast contexts that people find themselves in ministry and that there isn't just that that always must be contextualized. Mm. So a bunch of our, so our theological education is more and more what we call embedded and embodied. And the place where we do that is through a lot of the kinds of things like you learned in, in the earliest experiment in this, which was our MAGL, which is an online and hybrid education. Um, we now have more students scattered in more cities and more places around the world than we do in any of our campuses and way more around the world than we have in Pasadena. Right. That is because we now have the ability to actually teach, teach and shape students and learners in their contexts. Yeah. Mm. That's a radical difference. You don't have to come to, you don't, you don't come to a campus to be shaped. You're actually shaped in your context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that changing new world. Go ahead. You know, if you were uh, just sitting across the table from a church leader and they were saying, I, to be honest, I am completely overwhelmed with the West. In other words, I'm coming over the ridge and I just want to turn around and run back the <laughs> other direction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what would you, what would you say to them? Like, where do you start? How do you even take the first few steps into the new world. Well, for the first place you start is by acknowledging uh, that this is grief. Mm. Um, I'm I'm 54 years old and I say the most depressing place to be is to be around 55 and in a mainline church. (laughs) Because (laughs) if you're a pastor of a mainline church and you're 55 years old, you probably got about 15 more years before you can retire. And you thought at 55, you would be cruising. You thought, Mm. I now have enough experience. I now have mm-hmm. enough wisdom. I probably have a secure call. I basically get to be the wise mentor teaching people and caring for them until I'm done. And what they're finding is at 50, in their 50s, 
And now all the way through people in their thirties, forties, fifties, we've got all kinds of church leaders who are having to relearn all the time. Mm -hmm. so it takes a profound amount of humility and you're dealing with people who are dealing with loss all the time. I always say that key to adaptive leadership is it requires learning and it results in loss. So it is hard. Yeah. But then I would say you're a disciple. Mm. Word disciple and the word learner are the same word. It is in our Christian DNA to keep being humble and to keep learning. And this one skill set every pastor knows better than almost anything else is how to care for people in grief. Mm -hmm. You are trained to help people deal with loss. You have the hope of the resurrection. The problem is you think you're supposed to deal with individuals who are going through grief. And today you're actually dealing with organizations and communities and churches. And your ability to help people deal with loss with the hope of the gospel, your ability to use empathy and hope, that combination is exactly what your church needs as you lead them into uncharted territory. Mm. So you have the skill set, but it's going to require your own adaptation of your own and your own ongoing transformation. Mm, that's excellent. So you've worked with a uh, hundred or so churches. You've said, um, like, share with us some hopeful stories. Like, what what are some examples you've seen of churches really pivoting off the map? It's new territory moving away from hierarchical leadership to empowering starfish type leadership. What are some of the things that really encouraged you? What does it look like? So I would basically put it this way. I think we're in the phase of this. If, if after, um, after 1500 years of Christendom, we're in the first 50 years of a post-Christian mm -hmm. world. We're talking about really early shoots. Yeah. It's like a few seconds on the clock, right? I'm talking about really early shoots popping up through the, through the pavement here. Right. So, so I say that not as a, as a defense, but as a way of trying to give perspective. I, probably the most, the most difficult part, part I have is when I get a young pastor who says to me, looks at me and goes, wait a minute, you're saying my whole life is going to be about this. Oh yeah. And your kids too, probably. Yeah. Like, like we've got a couple of generations worth of work in front of mm. us. Right? So, which is really biblical, right? You know, I mean, mm. we've got whole histories in the scriptures of a couple of hundred years spent. Yeah. 70 years in captivity, 200 years in, uh, you know, 70 years in exile, 200 years in captivity. Yeah. We got all kinds of stuff, 400 years of, of Egyptian exile, right? So it's like, oh, great. I get to be the exile. Yeah, this is, this is the era he dropped me in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the answer to that is, yeah, mm -hmm. like that is, this is our charge. This is our call. Very insightful. So, so, but what, so what's most encouraging to me is watching organizations beginning to grapple with this. So like one of the groups that I work with a lot is Fresh Expressions, which came out of the church, uh, the, out of the UK. You know, right out of the UK, grappling with just the free fall of their, of their church. When Leslie Newbegin in the 1970s came back from India, and he got back to the United Kingdom, and he said the paganism in England is worse than I discovered mm. all my years in, in, uh, in India. Um, they began to grapple with, here's the Anglican church grappling with what does a new expression of the church look like? And that idea of being able to value the inherited church and experiment with fresh expressions has now taken hold in lots of places around the country, particularly in the East. And you're beginning to see these experiments. And I think this is the part of the adaptation you're beginning to see. Churches that are beginning to work on rethinking leadership. Uh, in our seminary, almost every person who comes to our seminary 
comes as a person who's in the middle of some kind of vocational experiment. They're either working in a church already or they're working as uh, bivocationally. I don't even like to use that term, but the people understand. Mm-hmm. They're right. They're, they're, they're participating in church plants and new models of ministry, new models of worshiping community. I mean, there's just a lot of innovation happening mm-hmm. that is disrupting the church. And yes. to me, at the moment, the church experiences this as disruption. I don't think they experience this as success, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that if we're crossing over the Lemhi Pass, we're still in the first few minutes of despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, now yeah. we look at what does that look like? Um, mm-hmm. I have to also say the growth of the church in the majority world, the growth of the church, um, you know, the people don't know this, but the United States has stayed on, has, has a higher level of religiosity than say Europe, mostly because of immigration. When you recognize that it is the, it is the Pentecostal church of, of folks coming in from around the world. It is Christians immigrating. It is the Latino, the Latinx church. It is, the vibrancy of the African-American church. It is all these places. It is dominant white mainline culture that I've come out of that is in decline and struggling. That's the places in the world where there's still way more vibrancy and they, and they were way ahead because they didn't, because they weren't dominant in Christendom and they weren't trained in Christendom. They're way more adaptive today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's very good. Wow. This has been, Fantastic. Yeah, a treat. Yeah. In, in the words of one theologian, it's gold, Jerry, gold. <laughs> Thank you so much. L- let's say uh, someone's looking to find more about you or your books. Um, where can they find you on the internet? What's the best place to go? I think if you just Google my name, uh, Todd Bolsinger, um, it usually comes up. So um, I, have a, I do have a blog that I, uh, bolsinger.blogs.com, that I do some work on. Um, but mostly, uh, most of the stuff that I'm doing comes at, and you can certainly find me at Fuller Seminary, which is where I, I love being part of this community. My work is anchored in it, and a lot of the work that I do in both research, I teach doctoral students in leading change, and I get to work with churches and, and emerging leaders all over the world. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite a wonderful place. So find, Todd, find. I want to say personally, I'm very grateful um, for the work that you've done. And it's spoken to me in a time of transition. Mm. And it's been um, sobering and honest and, and difficult, but also hopeful and inspiring and practical. And I'm very grateful. So thank you. Yeah really welcome my pleasure yeah appreciate you todd and next time i get to pasadena fairly often i'll buy you sushi or whatever you want so love love to visit with you you be great okay well grace and peace thank you thanks todd